invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 22. Under the title and topic of Jesus politics temptations. Those three things can be spoken in the same context because there are many temptations that arise when you talk about Jesus and politics or just talking about Jesus with people or just talking about politics with people. Mix the two together and you've really got a conversation going with some people. If you want to uh, spark up some angst at a already strange family dinner, just bring up something about Jesus or bring up something about money or bring up something about how you raise your kids or politics or politics. And so this being a uh, 2023 going into 2024 year election year, I thought it would be wise to look at what the scripture teaches us about how to relate as a Christian to politics or how to relate as a Christian to political parties or governance, because we need to be like um, more than anybody else on the planet, imperturbably solid, no matter what the roller coaster yields. We need to be those who are fixed on Jesus, full of conviction for why we believe what we believe, what our political beliefs are, what our platform is. We need to be solid and clear but we need to be um, gospel solid in our clarity. And our footing and foundation should be strong no matter what the political theatrics yield. The candidates that will be um, placarded are putting themselves forward in all array fighting to the death for their political platform or position. Um, saying that the next hundred years will be affected by the person that is elected for sure. Um, and the trajectory of our country one way or the other will, will um, be determined by this particular election more than any other um, now or to come. This is it. And that's the way these things are set in our culture. Our kids, our grandkids, our great grandkids, those whom we will leave behind will be affected forever by how the political vote is cast and as crazy as things are, some of that might be true, actually. It was kind of wild to think. But um, we know from Scripture that Jesus promises that the culture will go from bad to worse. Things are happening before our eyes, and they're trending in a way that's validating what Scripture promised. Uh, but it kind of depends on how you view the book of Revelation. Is it a future book? Are things really going to get worse with the Antichrist and Mystery Babylon and, and things to come? And judgments that will be poured out on our world, I think that is true. Christ said that if they treated the master who he is the master in the way that they did, then how will they treat his servants? And we are his servants who are left here. Um, Jesus was followed by few and hated and rejected by many and most. And um, our call is to be faithful in the midst of a secular world. So I've taken up... Uh, uh, a mini-series on Worship in the Round called God and Government. Some of you came to that. We're going to be going into round two next weekend, October 1st. That's 5 p.m. But I gave five positions for how Christians relate to government. I introduced that last time, and then we'll be picking up on 
um, the, the last one and the next one, um, just to keep building the, the idea of how to discern God and government. You have these five categories, God under government, which is a submissive posture, God over government, which is to say we need to politically reform the government and Christianize it. God in government, which is to say we need to influence the government from the inside. Um, God versus government, which is the idea of civil disobedience or sort of a protest against government. And then God and government, which is the two kingdom mentality of we have governance down here and we are um, serving a greater king, a kingdom that is not of this world. And so which is it? Well, I will make the case just to sort of let the cat out of the bag that there's, there's probably something good to be taken from each of these categories. I'm not just pitting all four against one, but, um, but I am trying to build a biblical case for how to think. And I want us to be pastored through that. And that's probably more of an academic exercise or a philosophical exercise theologically for sure. But in the midst of that series, God has brought us to this text. And you know, I don't plan really the text out in a calendar. It just sort of comes in the flow of where God is opening his word to us through the flow of a book of the Bible, because I'm a biblical expositor. Here we are. And so I'm grateful for it because this text is really showing us Jesus by example for how he related to God and government, how he was imperturbable, how he was strong in the face of what I would see as temptations or tests for him to become flapped by the political scene, to be taken off mission. He was one of a kingdom on earth and kingdom in heaven mentality, concomitant or simultaneous at all points when he was here. He's concerned for the people down here, but he's concerned to bring them up there. Our text lays out particular temptations when you're dealing with something that is ultimately out of our control. We might think we can change things in our flesh, but we really can't. God is the one who ultimately appoints kings and kingdoms. He raises kingdoms and puts them down, the Bible says, again and again. Just read Mary's prayer when she found that she was going to be with child who was the Messiah. She's talking all about that, reflecting Hannah's prayer from the Old Testament as well. This kingdom dynamic is under God's sovereign purview. And God allows who's going to be in charge. So how are we to respond to this? And Jesus gives us an example of how he kept his eye on the ball as the Lamb of God in the midst of a very turbulent political society. All three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have this paragraph, have this account in here. This teaching is here for us to pay attention to. And one of the clear reasons why is because politics can tempt you to take your eye off the ball. It sure did the Jews who wanted Jesus to be a political revolutionary. Things were really hot and really bad and really turbulent. We're going to talk about that. But so much so that surely if this is the Messiah, then he is going to do business with what's going wrong against the Jews right now. And their blindness um, is something that we need to be warned of as a church that could miss the Messiah in in the 21st century, in our day, for the temptation to be embroiled in politics in a wrong way. The oppression of Rome was, for the early church, egregious. It was really, really bad, and people wanted Jesus to take the role of God over government, a Messiah for political reform. In our day and age, post-COVID, post-Trump, post-moral, as people would see it, 
There's a growing sense in our nation of a sense of loss, like we've lost, we've lost something, a temptation to be discouraged, a temptation to genuinely feel like what kind of country am I going to leave behind for my kids and grandkids? It's a repeated concern. There's a growing movement in response to that called Christian nationalism that people are talking about. There was a conference in Georgia that took a dedicated a full day with 7,000 people in Atlanta to talk about Christian nationalism. I haven't purviewed or seen that, what they said about it yet, but Basically, I was looking at a podcast and familiarizing myself with an author these days who just as a pastor, he had left Southern California as a statement and he moved to Texas. He went from a blue state to a red state so he could be an obedient Christian. And that's his platform. He wrote a book called Fight by Flight, Fight by Flight. So leave California is what he's calling for all the Christians to leave California and follow him because you really can't be obedient there. You are paying taxes to an immoral system. You're, um, you're there and you, you know, it's difficult. You can't put your kids in school. You can't even homeschool there anymore. So go to a red state where you can obey. That's his position. And people are glomming onto him and they like it. They, they say you can strip the population of Christianity there so you can strip one or two electoral seats and make a difference that way. Well, this pastor, it's interesting. He said that, you know, by being in a red state, you can be a better homemaker, better taxpayer, better um, homeschooler. Um, you can pay taxes um, there in a, a, with a clear conscience. But he moved to a red state, but he moved to a blue city called Austin. So it's just kind of confusing. A little head scratcher there. Like, dude, why would you move there? Go to Houston or somewhere. All right, anyway. Or somewhere. Anyway, uh, practical temptations are with politics is what I'm outlining this under. And you say, well, temptations, aren't we going to read about Christ? Christ can't be tempted, right? Well, he can't be tempted internally, but he, he dealt with traps externally. People were setting traps. That's what this text is about. The trap is being set for Jesus to compromise, and he models how to avoid those traps, how to not get ensnared. The word test is in here, and the word test, it can be translated temptation. And Jesus confronts this. You see in verse 15 um, that the Pharisees plotted to, you see this, to entangle him with words. And then in verse 18, Jesus will say, why put me to the test? That word test is the word parasmos. It can also be translated temptation. Why are you externally bringing me to these temptation points? Why are you trying to come after me and get me to compromise? In James 1, the word parasmos is used in both ways. It's a test in terms of a trial from the outside. But for, for believers on earth, we have a sin nature. So these tests, when, when dealt with wrongly, they become internal temptations from the inside out. And we're like, oh, I'm struggling from the inside as I'm feeling the pressure on the outside. And Jesus is showing us and modeling for how to pass these tests, how to, how to keep ourselves from being tempted to take our eye off the ball. And keep on mission for Christ. It's an up-close clinic for how Christ avoids three traps related to politics. Jesus' enemies tried to set Jesus up to an unwinnable situation. They're going to create a crossroads, a false bifurcation. Are you following Caesar or are you not? That's the dividing line here. Are you going to be a political revolutionary and go against Caesar? Or are you going to be a coward and you're going to cede power to him? Both would threaten Jesus' qualification as Messiah. If he worshiped Caesar or, or affirmed Caesar, then he would uh, be disqualifying himself as the true Messiah. And then secondly, if he 
just was the coward and said, I'm unwilling to do anything in relation to Caesar, then he is this coward who's failing the test of being Messiah. Let me read our text. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So it's countering three temptations set by the religious right and the political left. Three temptations set by the religious right and the political left. Temptation number one is countering the temptation from flattery. Countering the temptation from flattery. This is verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 sets the stage for where Jesus is. He's in the middle of the week in the Passion Week going to the cross, probably Wednesday evening at this point, and he's still teaching in the aftermath of having cleared out the temple. The Pharisees, who are the power source religious leaders, um, they mobilize some covert disciples to go after Jesus with this question. And the Pharisees would have colluded with uh, unlikely bedfellows, meaning the Herodians. So they're in cahoots with them. They do some mind share, I'm sure, and think through, how do we get Jesus one way or the other? We're going to catch him or the word entangle him or trap him and snare him with his own words. That's verse 15. That's the key. You want Jesus to misspeak because of their committee think where they've come up with an unanswerable question that no matter how Jesus answer it, answers it, he'll be in trouble. He'll be like what Herod Antipas did to John the Baptist. He'll be incarcerated, jailed, and beheaded. Verse 16 opens up the fact that these disciples, the Pharisees' followers... These covert operators were in cahoots with the Herodians. Who were the Herodians? The Herodians were some of the most unlikely people whatsoever to be mixing with these Pharisees. The Pharisees were nationalists in terms of Judaism and Israel. They were, they were nation lovers. They loved their land. They loved their people. They loved their heritage. They loved their history. But they had turned it all into an apostate religion where they're just following traditions. And they are dressed and robed in a majestic garb. They would have been easily spotted by Christ. Christ would have put his defenses up. But so instead they sent spies. Luke 20, 20 said it this way. They watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So these covert spies came in covertly. They're the ones who, like, you remember last year's, uh, last round, not last year, but four years ago, the election, when you would have the DNC or the RNC, but in particular the DNC, where you would have people stand up and shout and scream, and, and they would be representing a caricature of the other party, of the Republican Party, 
And there are these, you know, spies or plants that are put in there to discredit politically. Well, the same thing was happening here. What about the Herodians? The Herodians are Edomites, and they're people who are from the area of Moab, from the line of Esau, and they weren't pure wholesale Jews. They were intermixed in their ethnicity, which ultimately meant that they were vulnerable to being co-opted or conscripted by Roman rule. And so you have Roman sort of plants or stooges that were the Herodians. They were under the Herod system. Remember, Herod the Great had four sons that were the Tetrarchs, the four different Herods that were planted around the different region, Herod Philip, Herod Antipas, and the like, and they were all controlling Israel in the name of Rome. So the Jews hated the Herod system. They hated the Herodians. Herodians were nominal Jews. They were of a Jewish sect, but they weren't true Jews. They were Hellenized or Romanized, and they were the true spies, but as if the Trumpers and the Democrats were getting together as unlikely bedfellows. These were getting together and they were saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? We are against Jesus wholesale and he's hurting both of us. So we need to neutralize him and then we can fight to the, to the death later. <laughs> this one international um, brother in Christ actually reminded me of something this week when he looked at my sermon and he said, you know, this is deeper and, and even politically hotter than just two political parties going after each other like liberals and conservatives here in our country. This would be Rome overtaking um, or overlaying itself onto a country. So one government coming over top of another government and then parties from each coming together. What would that be like? Well, think of communist China. If communist China had its own plants in our country and those leaders represented communist hypothetical rule that was overruling our country, allowing us still to exist as the United States of America, but we were no longer um, free. We're under their control. That's the dynamic, and the collusion would be that kind of um, collusion between those two parties. So like under China with uh, Xi Jinping, where you, you have leaders who are connecting with people politically tied to our country. That, that just is unthinkable, but that's the amount of uh, passion that was behind this question for these two unlikely groups to come together and say, we're going to come after Jesus and make him either declare himself as a political revolutionary against Caesar or completely uh, um, into a cowardice position yielded to Caesar. Either one would get him in trouble. One would get him in trouble with the Jews because if he was the coward, then the Pharisees would say, we got him, and we can come after him. And if he was the revolutionary or a zealot who would kill for um, Rome, then he was someone who would, would do that, and he would be in trouble. He would actually be in big trouble against Rome. The irony of ironies is that Jesus was going to the cross in days, and he was going to undergo a willing execution and die. And so he would take himself out of play from a political standpoint anyway. So what's the flattery? The flattery is found in verse 6, 16. And this is the first temptation that Christ, our first test that he had to undergo. They're saying, teacher or rabbi, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Okay, that's a true statement about Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, he did teach the way to God truthfully. He had full integrity in what he taught. 
And then it says, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. That also was true. Jesus is imperturbable. He's steady. He's cool. He's unflapped. And it goes on where they're making another true statement. You are not swayed by appearances. The word appearances is the word faces. You're not, you're not swayed or flapped by people scowling at you for you saying hard truth. We've observed those things. Now, these are statements that are truly spoken, but spoken from a hypocritical heart. They want Jesus to drop his guard, lower his defenses, and capitulate. This is the right state of mind, by the way. We want to be of the truth. We want to be unflappable. We don't want to care what people think. And we want to operate with complete integrity and truthfulness, where public opinion doesn't matter whatsoever. But all of this is prologue to their predetermined question from this unlikely committee. It's all prologue. Why? Because I'll say this. If you fall prey to the temptation of someone's flattery, you will drop your defenses. If you begin to believe your own press clippings where people say, you're great, you're wonderful. If somebody comes to you and says, you are just the most spiritual person I've ever met. And I just appreciate you so much and your Bible study and you're so wonderful. And oh, it's so good. What they're doing is they're trying to get something from you usually. Always. I mean, you just don't want flattery. Flattery is to be eschewed. It's to be avoided, especially in your own heart. If people say good things about you, just say, praise the Lord. Thank you for that. I mean, you don't have to show a harshness to someone doing that or, you know, a skeptical eye. Just don't believe what they're saying. Remember your own sin. In Jesus' case, as a sinless son of God, who's fully impeccable, he couldn't sin in his heart. Um, He just avoids this temptation altogether because he's holy, but he is fully human at the same time. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted at all points, yet without sin. So he was tempted in his humanity, though his full deity and purity means that he wasn't tempted internally, but he was able to just basically ignore what they were saying. Verse 17, here's the temptation to compromise. This is the dividing line trap that was set. It says, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is the nexus of the trap. Tell us what you think. It begins with, we've already said that you're the bomb.com. You're totally true. You're completely truthful. You, you speak of the way of God. You're imperturbable. You're unflappable. You're not flapped by people's faces at you or anything. You're awesome. So based on who you are, not on your tradition, not on your religion, not on your opinion, but based on who you are as this awesome being, tell us what you think. I mean, they are really laying it on thick, just, you know, on the toast, just a lot of butter, a lot of butter, a lot of jam. What do you think? Declare one way or the other. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, as the old adage goes, follow the money. Where are you going to put your money? Are you going to give it to Caesar or not? That's what we want to know, and then we'll know what to do with you. Then he'll be trapped. Full loyalty or full disloyalty, full wholesale belief in Caesar's ideologies or complete rebellion to those ideologies. Choose a position. Is it lawful to pay? Now, that phrase lawful is interesting because it really is a dividing line over which law Jesus is perceived as following. Is it lawful to follow Caesar? Do you put Caesar's law above God's law? 
Or is it lawful to follow God's law above Caesar's law? Which are you going to choose? It's kind of like a Bible question. You're going to follow the Bible or you're going to follow government? That would be that kind of question in modern times today. You're going to follow Christ or are you going to follow, you know, this liberal government? And it's a bifurcating question. I would call it it's false bifurcation. It's a false dichotomy. If Jesus says yes to Caesar's tax law, then that will mean that he is, super, he is um, suppressing, saying that Caesar's tax law supersedes God's law. If he says no, then Christ is raising up God's law to supersedes, supersede Caesar's law. Which law is higher? This is supercharged by the context of the fact that Caesar had proclaimed himself to be God. He had sloganized himself, the emperor of Rome had sloganized himself as deity. So the obvious answer assumed is that Jesus will say, I can't give money to someone who's proclaiming himself to be God. They're expecting Jesus to go rogue here and become a political revolutionary, to become a zealot, someone who was against Rome, I should say. A zealot was against Rome. They would, they would kill and execute Roman soldiers um, by shiving them in the back in crowds. Or would Jesus just take peace at all costs and just completely bow out and capitulate and play the coward and say, I can't say anything about anything politically? Well, again, you have to follow the money. You have to see what he says to do with the money, with this perfectly cast, colluded question with the most unlikely bedfellows of all time. The power of this question is to see that it is loaded with a singular point, and that is this idea that you cannot separate the secular from the sacred. You'll hear this in modern times where people are pushing people into taking a radically aggressive or radically passive position with God and government and politics where they will say, look, you can't divide the secular from the sacred. You can never divide the secular from the sacred. How dare you divide the secular from the sacred? You'll hear that over and over again. Which I think in a broad sense, that's a good point to make. But in a fine sense, a finer sense, it's something that needs to be nuanced biblically. What do I mean by that? Well, in a broad sense, you can't separate the secular from the sacred because God's sovereign over all of it. As the old hymn writer said, this is my father's world. It is his world. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of all things. In in him, in Christ, all things hold together. Life and breath. Kingdoms are being raised and thwarted. God is involved in the king that is put over governance. He put Joe Biden as our king president right now that, that, we, that we pray for and, and wonder about and all of that. I mean, those are real dynamics that God is sovereign over and he turns, it says in the Bible that he turns the hearts of the kings like, like streams of water. And so there's direction. He, he raised up Babylon over Israel. He raised up Assyria over Israel. He, he's in these details. He is, and we see that all through scripture. But at the same time, you have to understand that there is, a, there is a true separation within our world between that which is righteous and that which is unrighteous, that which is holy and that which is sinful, that which is light and that which is dark, that which is Christ and that which is the devil, that which is heaven, that which is hell, that which is saved, that which is unsaved. There's a true separation at the same time going on. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And Satan is the, the God of this world. He's given rule and reign over the secular, hell-sending, damnable ideologies that are in our world that Satan is over. 
So there is something to run from. There is something to be a sojourner through. We are aliens and strangers in this world. We, our inheritance is up there, not down here. There is a distinction between being a son of God and a child of the dark. There is, there is, there is. That is what the gospel says. It is a two-kingdom dynamic, up there kingdom that we experience down here in Christ and down here kingdom that if you are only a part of that kingdom, you'll be dragged down to hell. That is what's going on. So there is no difference in secular and sacred in terms of God's redemptive sovereign plan where he is going to right all the wrongs and, and bring everything forward in the future. But there is a real sense that Jesus comes down here and rescues us in the rapture from a world that's going to hell. There's the narrow few that find it and the broad road that leads to destruction. So when you put everything together, that there really is no difference between the secular and the sacred, again, it forces you to take a very passive position where you go, well, I'm just going to capitulate to it because I can't win. You know, I'm just going to submit and not think about it or speak out against it or do anything to try to influence it. Just going to escape it. Or you take the aggressive position where you say, I'm fighting against that tooth and nail. And this is my life's raison d'etre to do that. And I think that's a false bifurcation. We have to understand it in view of two kingdoms. We do our part with the secular government down here. I I believe we should vote. I believe we should take a position. I believe we should understand the issues. I believe we should be salt and light in the world. I believe we should pray for governing authorities. I believe we should be evangelists in our community. I believe some people are called to have certain specific callings, like a William Wilberforce to eradicate slavery from the UK that influenced our country. I believe that we should speak out against things like the ills of abortion. I believe that we should pray for conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians to be in governance. I, I think that's wonderful. But at the same time, I believe that we should, we should run from sin. We should, we should flee in separation as a church to stand as a beacon on a hill where you have people that see a difference between a community like this one that's heaven on earth compared to what the world has to offer in all of its vacuous, empty promises. So can you really have the both and? Well, Jesus, remember, they were trying to get rid of him. He was already on the plan to be gotten rid of. (laughs) They were trying to get him to, to out himself, and he was already, his face was set like flint to go to the cross, and he was not going to be distracted by this moment. He knew why he was doing what he was doing, and he was going to the cross as the Lamb of God. Temptation number three that he avoided or countered was the temptation to distraction. And he did this with his answer. Look at verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice. Again, they had said all these good things. You're true and you're giving the true way of God and you're full of truthfulness. You are a rabbi. They were malicious. They didn't believe anything that they had, were saying. They were trying to butter him up. And he said, why did you put me to the test? Why are you trying to tempt me in this way? Why are you trying to trap me? You hypocrites, you play actors. You tried to send your spies, but they're play actors. You know, you're saying that you're getting along with the Herodians. You're play acting. You're hypocrites. You're not the real thing. None of what you said, though it might be true, is true to you. You're a hypocrite. Then he confounded their question with what he said. He said, show me the coin for the tax. 
And they brought him a denarius. Now, the word coin here is a hapax legomenon. It means that it was only used one time as a word in the New Testament. It's the only time it was used was right here. And it's a denarius, which is not a shekel. The Jews would have carried shekels typically to pay their tax. And so he was saying, I want a denarius. Show me a coin like that, a specific coin. And the Jews would have been going, oh, well, and the Her- hey, um, Herodian, can you? Yeah, and so they rush a, a Roman coin up. They, you know, that's, that's the tax money that's going to represent the kingdom down here versus the kingdom up there. So this is object lesson number one. They think they've got him. Do you live in a secular world with a secular governance in a yielded position or you are revolutionary? And Jesus gives a third option, says, follow the money. Here's the denarius. It's a day's wage. And what is minted on one side of it is Caesar Tiberius's face. And I think that's very important because he wants to show them the idolatry of Rome. This is Roman idolatry. Um, Caesar Tiberius, and a Latin phrase under it would have been Divi Og Augustus, which means Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So Augustus, Caesar Augustus from Rome is God. And Caesar Tiberius is the son of God. That's what he wanted them to read. So he's just going, Caesar's God, and Tiberius, his boy here, is the son of God. So you're, you're seeing, I'm Messiah. That's what Jesus is doing. And this guy's claiming to be Messiah. That's how bad, that's how idolatrous this is. For the Jews, they would have gone, you know, like, I don't want to commit idolatry right now. And there's no graven image, you know. I, I, I'm not feeling comfortable. And Jesus is just unflappable by faces, right? He's unflapped by the appearances, which the word appearance, as I read earlier, is the Greek word faces. He's, he's not moved by this. He says, this is their idolatry. This is not my idolatry. I'm not worshiping this. They worship this. They worship their political system. I'm not a worshiper of that. He's making that very, very clear. There are two kingdoms here at large, and I'm not of that kingdom. Even though he represents himself as God, I'm going to say what I'm about to say. That's where he's setting, setting up his statement. On the other side of the corn, I do want to mention this. It also says Pontiff Maxim. So he's saying he's the son of God on one side and he is the highest priest on the other. That's a phrase used in the Catholic Church even today about the Pope, Pontiff Maxim. I'm the highest of the priests. And so for Rome to bow down to the Caesar meant that you were bowing down politically and religiously, spiritually at the same time. That's how corrupt this system was. It wasn't it wasn't the government of the Jews. It was a superimposed, idolatrous, worldly, secular, anti-God government. And he's saying, what do you do? Do you, they were saying, will you give to that government? And he said, look, let me have their coin. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Verse 20. That's what Jesus said to them. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And the obvious answer is Caesar's. Caesar's inscription. That's what they said, verse 21. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Let's start with the first half of that phrase. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. What does he mean by that? He's saying this is their system. This is their economy. This is their money. This is their false belief system. This is their idolatry. Give them back what's theirs. It's a mindset. He's not saying you don't participate in it. 
It is what it is. It's the governance that you're under at this time. It's what's happened to you. But it doesn't have to take you off mission. It doesn't have to be a distraction to you, which was the big temptation. You just give them back what's theirs. This idea of playing in the sandbox at an elementary school and somebody says, hey, you know, um, what are you going to do with my truck? Well, I'm going to take your truck and I'm going to give it back to you. That's, that's how elementary Jesus is speaking here. Just give them back what is theirs. Caesar's secular government is obvious. It's functional. It's real. Just give them what's theirs. It's almost like Jesus is saying, look, don't distract me with that. Give them back what's theirs. I'm going to the cross. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Dealing with Caesar is separate from dealing with God because he says, and to God, the things that are God's. He's in essence talking in two realms. You have Caesar's realm and God's realm. There's a functional realm down here on earth where you pay your taxes, whether it's secular, whether it's even satanic. You're just paying your taxes. You're giving them their due. And then you are keeping your eye on the ball with the cross. Romans 13 says the same thing. Verse 5, this is when you had Nero who was in charge of the governance. He was killing Christians. Romans 13, 5, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I honestly believe that having the integrity to obey the law strengthens your witness if you have the chance to speak before a king or a governor or an authority. Christ is undistracted by this question and he practically solves it as a non-issue. Jesus is not ruled by mammon and he, in essence, is saying, obey God first. You just functionally give the taxes, but obey God first. Give your sacrifice, give your worship, give your praise to Yahweh. And I find that when you are living for Christ, the opportunities to stand for him, even in public arenas, will come to you. Give to God what is God's. Taking this position and understanding there's a difference between the secular and the sacred means that you're not immediately pigeonholed as a radical revolutionary or someone who's a passive coward. You're walking the narrow line. You give to Caesar what, what is Caesar's, unless you're being asked to sin. You don't obey, um, you obey God rather than man. But you, you just do the right thing and navigate that, being wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And then you live the gospel in front of the watching world. And you're avoiding an extreme passive or extreme aggressive approach. This, by the way, convinced them to stop. That's one of my points. It's convincing them to stop. And that is verse 22. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. 
They convinced them to, them to stop. They had nowhere to go. They might not have agreed with Jesus, but they marveled at what Jesus said, and they left him. This was a master trap. It was foolproof from their perspective. They had no idea that Jesus was going to strip apart the secular from the sacred to make two categories and say that you can navigate both at the same time. One will supersede the other, but you can give them their idolatrous due and paying your taxes, and you can live for the kingdom of God at the same time. They were saying there's no way he could have it both ways, and he did. He clarified the two-kingdom mentality. So where, this, where does this leave us in modern times? There's a secular kingdom. There's a sacred savior. Jesus was the lamb of God. He went to the cross undeterred and undistracted. And because he died for us, we charge ahead in our world, I believe. Again, we're, we're entering political times. It's probably way less than what we think we will see in our own lifetime, but it might become a society where the heat turns up real quick on Christians. Do we vote? Yes. Do we pay taxes? Yes. Do we influence? Yes. Our chief focus is on the kingdom of God that's not of this world, calling souls in our country and around the world to believe. The gospel is to the nations, not just our nation. It's a good reminder to keep in front of us. The mission is to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. Temptations are meant to stop Jesus' plan, to thwart Jesus' plan. But because there are two kingdoms, listen to this, one kingdom was able to kill Christ so that he could make a way for him to be the savior, to bring other people, believers, to the other kingdom. So one kingdom took him down that opened the door for him to offer salvation to the kingdom that's not of this world. What do I mean by that? Well, remember Jesus stood with Pilate and Pilate said in John 18, 35, he would stand before Pilate on Friday and Pilate said, am I a Jew? And the Jews were saying, crucify him. And Pilate's trying to kind of stand up for him a little bit and saying, I'm not of your kingdom. I'm not of this governance. Am I a Jew? says, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered by saying this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over to the Jews. They want a political revolutionary. They know I'm not going to do that because I'm of a different kingdom. They want to kill me. He said, but my kingdom is not of this world. And because that kingdom killed Christ... We as Christians have been brought into a different kingdom. Colossians 1.13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Are you a kingdom citizen? Yeah, we fight the good fight of faith down here. We're salt and light down here, but we're part of a different world. Jesus is truly the one who can bring about one kingdom, and he will when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. But we're in his kingdom now as citizens. He's the king. And we await the king's return. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to encounter Christ. And I pray that we would walk our path being undistracted as strangers in this world, but as participants in gospel mission and ministry. I pray that we would keep our eye on the ball. 
and speak the truth in love with everyone we meet and greet and those that we come in contact with. Let us be faithful citizens of your kingdom first as we're citizens in this kingdom and the world for a time being. Lord, we want to be um, just faithful, undistracted Christians who love the Lamb of God and glory in the fact that our sins have been forgiven. Lord, we await your soon and coming return. Even so, come Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.